Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN always encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. So go to expressvpn.com gold and get an extra three months free on your one-year subscription package. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Mint Mobile. For people who hate their phone bill and are ready to cut the ties with big wireless, now you can cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month and get a plan shipped to your door for free at mintmobile.com slash gold. Well, today the Federal Reserve did something it hasn't done in more than 20 years. It raised its benchmark interest rate by 50 basis points. The last time that happened was the year 2000. That happened to be the peak of the last big bubble in stocks, in particular, the technology bubble, the dot-com days, and that ushered in a huge bear market which saw the NASDAQ lose about 80% of its value. And I think something similar could be in store for the NASDAQ this time, given how massively overvalued it is. We have our share of dot-com stocks in today's market. But all that aside, today there was a huge rally in the stock market, the NASDAQ in particular, because the Fed could have been a lot more hawkish than it was. In fact, a lot of people expected the Fed to raise rates by 75 basis points. But in reality, even that wouldn't have been enough. But 50 basis points is even less enough. My interpretation of this hike was that it was a dovish hike. 
The fact that the decision to hike by just 50 basis points was unanimous makes it even more dovish. There wasn't even a lone FOMC member who voted for a 75 basis point hike. In fact, during the Q&A, Powell even took future 75 basis point rate hikes off the table by indicating that at most the next two hikes would be 50 basis points. The hawkish Fed had basically already turned chicken on its very first rate hike. And based on the market reaction, investors seem to agree with me that the Fed is actually backtracking on all of its tough talk, despite the fact that at the press conference today, Jerome Powell certainly put on an act as if the Fed was going to be tough on inflation. But reading between the lines, and again, Powell didn't make it that difficult to do, it seems that the inflation fight is a lot more talk than it is action. And I'm going to get into my take on that conference a bit later in the podcast. First, let's look at the reaction in the markets to this 50 basis point rate hike because the Dow Jones rose better than 900 points. It closed up 932 points. That is a percentage increase of 2.8%. But the NASDAQ rose even more. It was up better than 3%, 3.15%. And the riskier the stocks were, the bigger the move. The Kathy Wood ARK Innovation ETF was up better than 5%. And if you look at how Bitcoin reacted, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust was up 8%. Obviously, Bitcoin, the most speculative asset of all, and that's why it had the biggest rally. Although Bitcoin itself still hasn't managed to get back above 40,000. It's at 39,800 as I'm speaking, but it was a lot lower prior to the Fed's announcement. Big reaction in the currency market. The US dollar was clobbered. The euro was up about a percent. Bigger move in the Australian dollar, up about two and a quarter percent. So the dollar index dropped by almost a full percentage. We went down to 102.50, but a huge reversal in the bond market. Before we got the rate hike decision, yields on the five, 10, and 30 year were all above 3% at new highs for this move. Then when we got the news, there was a complete reversal, the biggest decline in the five-year, then the 10-year, then the 30-year. So the yield curve really steepened as a result. The yield on the five-year all the way back down to 2 spot 896. The 10-year back below 3% as well at 2.917. And the only yield still above three is the 30-year treasury at 3 spot 03. So the markets, again, interpreting the Fed's move today as being dovish. Gold did rise, but not nearly as big a rise as you might have expected given the reaction in other markets. Gold was only up about $15, closed at around $18.82, and gold stocks were up, but not nearly as much as the overall stock market or the NASDAQ. Maybe we'll get a delayed reaction tomorrow, but I think this really is a game changer because so many people were so convinced that the Fed was going to be extra tough on inflation, that they were really going to show the markets how tough they were going to be. They had an opportunity to surprise the markets with a 75 basis point rate hike. In fact, there was about a 50% probability already baked into the cake that they would have done 75 basis points, but they passed on the opportunity to do that. And also, if you look at their announced plan of the rollout of quantitative tightening, it's not even going to start until June 1st. 
So there was some talk that it was going to start in May. It's not. They're waiting until June, and then they're phasing it in over three months. They did initially say they were going to do $95 billion of quantitative tightening every month. It was going to be $60 billion of treasuries and $35 billion of mortgage-backed securities. But apparently, they don't think they could do it right away. They want to ease it in. And so for the first three months, beginning in June, they're just going to do $47.5 billion of quantitative tightening, $30 billion in treasuries, and $17.5 billion in mortgage-backed securities. Now, here is something that nobody is talking about. If the Federal Reserve admits, and they do admit, that interest rates are inappropriately low, that the level that they think is appropriate is maybe 25 to 3%. Now, of course, the actual appropriate rate of interest is much higher than that, but the Fed won't admit that. But they have at least admitted that rates should be around 25 3% right now. I mean, that's what they've said is appropriate. Well, if that is the case, why not just go there right away? I mean, why drag your feet? Why raise interest rates 50 basis points this month, wait another month, go another 50 basis points, wait another month? Why not just go right there? What is the problem? Because if 2.5% is the appropriate rate of interest given the economy, according to the Fed, given the employment, given the inflation situation, if that's where interest rates should be, then why wait so long to get them there? Because the longer the Fed takes to put interest rates where it believes rates should be, the more damage they do to the economy. I mean, this is exactly what Alan Greenspan did when he raised interest rates at a measured pace following the bursting of the dot-com bubble and the September 11 attacks. We had that recession. The Fed had lowered rates down to 1%, which was too low. And then the Fed decided to raise rates. But instead of raising them rapidly back to where they thought rates should be, they went very slowly. They were measured. Why? Well, Greenspan was afraid that if he normalized rates too quickly, it might hurt the stock market. And he was probably right. But by going too slowly, he inflated a bigger housing bubble, which ended up hurting the stock market even more when it ultimately popped and ushered into 2008 financial crisis. The Fed is making the same mistake now. If it acknowledges that interest rates are too low, the faster it gets rates to where they should be, the better. Yes, it might be bad for the markets, but it's better for the economy. That's the only reason the Fed wants to wait. I mean, why not just do $95 billion of QT right now? Because the Fed is obviously worried that the markets can't handle it. Why not raise interest rates faster right now? Because the Fed is too worried about the short-term impact on the market. It's not actually worried about the negative impact on the economy of continuing to maintain interest rates that are much too low. And in fact, if the Fed's goal is to fight inflation, by keeping interest rates this low, they're actually making the inflation problem worse. They're pouring gasoline on a fire that they claim they want to put out. Let me talk about the press conference that followed a half hour later after this release. Powell initially addressed his opening remarks to the American public, not specifically to the reporters who were attending the conference, but he wanted to talk frankly with the American public and let the public know just how committed the Fed is to fighting inflation. Now, that was all a bunch of BS. That's just to show 
that Powell is putting on because he knows the public is fed up with inflation. Inflation is a big problem. So he wants to go all Bill Clinton and act as if he feels everybody's pain and that the Fed is committed to doing something about it. Probably also because Joe Biden just reappointed him and he's trying to make things better for Biden and the Democrats in the midterms. He knows that Biden's approval ratings are very low in large part because of how bad the inflation problem is. So Powell wanted to make it clear from the beginning that the Fed is committed to fighting inflation, even though everything that he really said during the press conference shows you that the Fed is not committed to fighting inflation at all. This whole thing is a show. The Fed is only going to pretend to fight inflation so long as the economy is not in a recession or the stock markets haven't crashed. But when either of those two things happens, then the Fed is going to drop the pretense and it's immediately going to go right back to stimulus. It's going to cut rates and do more QE. Now let's get to the rest of his statement because one of the most interesting things about his opening remarks is that he prefaced everything by again talking about how strong the economy is. Now mind you, it was just last week that we got the data on first quarter GDP, and it was minus 1.4%. Now, Powell and no one at the Fed really was forecasting a contraction in Q1 when they were talking about how strong the economy was. Well, now that we know that the economy contracted in Q1, and in fact, they may end up revising that number to show an even bigger contraction based on the new record high trade deficit that we got today. We got the trade deficit in goods. That came out earlier this morning. The forecast was for a trade deficit of $106.5 billion following the $89.2 billion deficit the prior month, which was a record. That record was revised up to 89.8, and then we shattered that record in March with $109.8 billion, several billion above the consensus estimate. In fact, even our trade deficit with Russia surged to an 11-year high. This will subtract even more from Q1 GDP, meaning that maybe the economy contracted 1.5% instead of 1.4%. But of course, Powell didn't mention the trade deficit specifically. He did talk about import and export imbalances, which he attributed to COVID and said were temporary, which was his way of completely shrugging off the trade deficit's impact on the economy And he continues to pretend that the economy is strong, even in the face of overwhelming evidence that not only is it not strong, that it may in fact be so weak that it is already in a recession. Now, also, again, in those opening remarks, Powell wanted to reiterate the fact that inflation is too high and that he gets it and he knows it's very problematic for families, that a lot of families are living paycheck to paycheck and they just don't have any extra money. And so when the price of food goes up or their landlord raises their rent, they really don't have the money. And so they're struggling. And so he's promising to address the problem. But if you listen to what he's promising, he's not promising actual relief. He's not telling the public, hey, I know food is too expensive. We're going to bring food prices down. We're really going to fight inflation. I know gas prices are too high. We're going to fight inflation so those prices come down. Powell is not promising anybody that these high prices ever come down. All Powell is promising is to reduce the future rate of inflation so that those high prices stop going up 
by 6 or 8 or 10% a year and just go up by 2% a year. But if the prices are already too high, why would making them even higher constitute a relief? If you can't afford the price of food now, well, it's going to be even more difficult to afford it when it's 2% more expensive and then 2% the next year and 2% the next year. Now, maybe Powell thinks, well, it'll be okay because wages will keep going up. How does he know that? I mean, if he slows down the growth of prices, what makes him think wages will keep going up? Maybe wage growth will actually slow faster than price growth. And in fact, even if the rate of price increases goes down, it's probably going to be in a context of wage growth going down. But in the reality, I don't think anything that the Fed is doing and anything that it's indicated it's willing to do is going to slow down inflation. Inflation is going to keep getting worse. And you know, the crazy part about all this, and I remember warning about this on my podcast in real time as it happened, when the Fed was still pretending that we didn't have enough inflation and its goal was higher inflation. And it seemed like it wasn't able to achieve its goal because inflation had stubbornly stayed below 2%. And the Fed was trying to solve this non-existent problem of too low inflation. And it wasn't able to do it because the CPI kept coming back below 2%. Not because we had inflation below 2%, but because the rig CPI didn't really capture all the inflation that was out there. Now, the Fed closed its eyes to reality and just stared at this broken CPI and claimed that it wasn't achieving its goal. But I remember in listening to questions during prior Q&As when people would ask Powell, you know, what if in trying to get inflation up to 2%, what if you succeed too well? What if you end up with inflation above 2%? Wouldn't you create another problem? In trying to solve the problem of too low inflation, what if you end up creating a problem of too high inflation? And the way Powell responded to that was by saying, well, that would be a great problem to have because the problem we have right now, low inflation, is very complex. I mean, we're not really sure how to fight low inflation because this is not something that central banks have typically fought. So we don't necessarily have a real rule book to follow. We're not really sure which tool to use. If we even have the right tools, we've been trying in vain to get the inflation rate up and we haven't really succeeded. So we're kind of scratching our head, but we're keep trying. But obviously, if we have too high inflation, well, that's easy. We know how to deal with that. The Fed has dealt with that in the past. We have the tools. We know exactly how to fix that problem. So if we end up with too high inflation, well, that's a good problem to have because we know how to fix it. And what I was pointing out at the time was that was pure nonsense. I was pointing out that the worst nightmare for the Fed would be too high inflation because that's a problem that they can't fix. Maybe they have the tools, but there's no way they're going to use them because I knew how much damage the tools would be. If you have a headache, and the only tool you have is a revolver, you're not going to pull the trigger to cure your headache. And that's basically what the Fed would have to do. They would have to kill the economy to get rid of inflation, which is why they won't do it, which is why back then I was saying that this was ridiculous for the Fed to actually wish for high inflation. I was saying, be careful what you wish for, because in this case, you're definitely going to get it. And then you have a problem that you can't solve because Yes, they have the tools, they can raise interest rates, but because they kept interest rates so low for so long, 
to fight the non-existent problem of inflation being too low, they put themselves in an impossible position of ever being able to fight an inflation rate that was too high, and that's where we are now. And that's why the Fed is just pretending that it's going to fight inflation. And it should be obvious to anybody who knows what to listen for when you listen to this press conference that that is exactly what Powell was saying. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash gold. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Does it make sense that the same company that controls half the online retail is also passively eavesdropping on your private conversations? What about the idea that a single company controls 90% of internet searches, but also runs your email services and gets to track everything you do from your smartphone? With government support, big tech is now more powerful than ever, and they're able to use your data in ways that you may not like. Now is the time to put a layer of protection between your online activity and those tech juggernauts. And that's why I use ExpressVPN. So go to expressvpn.com gold to learn more. Think about how much of your life is spent on the internet. Sadly, every site you visit 
video you watch or message you send gets tracked and data mined. But when you run ExpressVPN on your device, the software hides your IP address, something that big tech or government could use to personally identify you. So ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on the network. And ExpressVPN does all this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by Mashable and Tech Radar. But what I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. Just download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and you're protected. In fact, one of the extra benefits I get because I live in Puerto Rico, there's a lot of content that otherwise would not be available to me, but for my ability to fool the providers of that content into thinking I'm in a different location by using ExpressVPN. So stop handing over your personal data to big tech monopolies that mine your activity and sell your information. Protect yourself with a VPN I use and trust to keep my data safe. Visit expressvpn.com gold. That's expressvpn, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com gold to get three extra months free. Now, let me start talking about the question and answers because that's where we got a lot more interesting revelations because supposedly that's where Powell is talking off the cuff. But of course, I know that he anticipates certain questions and he's rehearsed his answers. And if he gets a question that he doesn't want to answer, well, he just grabs one of the rehearsed answers and just tries to make it fit that question, even if it's got nothing to do with that question. But One thing Powell was asked about was the supply shortages and what the Fed could do about that. And of course, Powell said there really is nothing the Fed can do about the supply side. All we can do is focus on the demand side. And he acted as if there's really nothing they could do when you have a supply problem because they're just on the demand side. Well, yeah, you can reduce demand if supply of goods and services goes down because of the pandemic, what the Fed should do is reduce the supply of money in line with the supply of goods and services, and that would maintain price stability. But the Fed didn't do that. In fact, the Fed did the opposite of that. The Fed increased the supply of money at the same time that the supply of goods and services was going down. The Fed did the exact opposite of what it should have done. In fact, I talked about that on this podcast that the Federal Reserve was originally created in part to provide an elastic money supply. And what was an elastic money supply? That meant a money supply that went up and down with the economy, meaning if the economy was contracting, the money supply contracted. The economy was expanding, the money supply was expanding. So based on the very purpose of the Federal Reserve, the appropriate monetary policy during COVID would have been to shrink the money supply, quantitative tightening. Instead, they flooded the economy with money. They did massive QE. So that is the problem. Yes, the Fed had no control over supply, but it did have control over demand in terms of money. It controlled the supply of money, not the supply of stuff. And while the supply of stuff was going down, instead of reducing the supply of money, which it should have done, it increased the supply of money. And that's why we have this big explosion in prices. And that's also why we're just getting started. Prices have a long way to go. In fact, look at oil today. Oil shot up better than $5 a barrel. Oil closed at $107.50. I mean, I think we've built a very strong base of support and we're headed much, much higher in the price of oil. In fact, we're headed higher in the price of everything. We're just building a big base and we're going to have an explosive rally. The whole time the Fed is hiking rates in baby steps, 
Prices are going to keep going up until ultimately we're in a recession and then the Fed's going to call off the rate hikes. But they're not going to call off the price hikes because the price hikes are going to continue. And in fact, they might kick into overdrive when the Fed reverses course and has to go back to easing because we're in recession. In fact, one of the reporters specifically asked Powell the question as to whether the Fed would continue to raise interest rates and tighten policy in the event that the economy happened to move into recession. Now, I know the answer to that question, but Powell didn't want to give the answer to that question. So he sidestepped it by basically saying, well, there's no point in even discussing that because there's no evidence of a recession anywhere in sight. In other words, look, it doesn't even matter what we would do if the economy went into recession because it's not going to happen. It's such a remote possibility. There isn't even any evidence of a recession anywhere. You can't see it. And so why even bother to contemplate something that's so unlikely because there's no evidence, despite the fact that we just had one quarter of negative GDP growth? I mean, that is rare. It's very unusual to get one quarter of negative GDP growth. In fact, there's a pretty good chance that when you get one quarter, you're going to get a second quarter. So to say that there's no sign of a recession anywhere in sight when we could be in one right now. And in fact, if we had a contraction in GDP in the first quarter, why wouldn't you think that the contraction in the second quarter might be even greater? Because now what consumers are going to be dealing with that they didn't have to deal with then are much higher mortgage rates, higher interest rates, and prices are higher now than they were then. So all of this is weighing down the consumer. To me, it makes more sense that we're going to have a second quarter of negative GDP growth than it's going to be one and done. I don't think the GDP weakness in Q1 was transitory. I think it's probably here to stay. And you know, I remember when I was going on television in 2008, when I was going on CNBC and Fox News and Bloomberg and CNN and all these other shows. And I was talking about the recession and the coming financial crisis and how bad the economy was. Everybody was talking about how the economy was strong. In fact, even the Fed, even Ben Bernanke at that time in 2008 was saying that there was no recession anywhere in sight. The same thing that Powell just said now, except he was saying it in early 2008. And not only wasn't a recession in sight, we were in a recession at the very instant that Bernanke was proclaiming that there was no evidence of a recession. Well, we were in it and he couldn't even see it. But it wasn't just any recession. It was the Great Recession. It was the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. We were in it. And the head of the Federal Reserve is saying there's no recession anywhere in sight. I mean, that would be like standing in front of a Category 5 hurricane. Maybe it's already hit. The wind is already blowing. And you're standing there and you're saying, no, there's no rain anywhere in sight. It's clear skies. I mean, it's clear how bad it was. It was clear to me how bad it was in early 2008, but the Fed was oblivious. Well, they're oblivious now. Well, either they were oblivious or they lied. And I think the same thing applies now. How you can say with a straight face that there's no evidence anywhere in sight of a recession when we've not only just had this negative quarter, But look at what's happening in the stock market. I mean, today's rally notwithstanding, we haven't seen this kind of carnage in the stock market. And in fact, in the bond market, we had the worst four months in bonds in the history of the bond market. 
I mean, and we've had some pretty bad declines in bonds, but this is the worst four months. I mean, not just the worst four months to begin a year, the worst four months of any part of the year. And we just had that. So we've had a bloodbath in bonds. We've had the worst first four months in the S&P since 1939. We just came out of the worst month in the NASDAQ in the history of the NASDAQ. We have all these evidence that the economy is in a lot of trouble. Certainly, we had a lot of earnings warnings. Even today, with the stock market going up, there were still stocks that blew up. Look at Lyft, down 30% today, a new 52-week low, stocks at 21.5. That's down from a 52-week high of 63. Uber went down in its wake, although it closed well off the lows. It closed down 4.65%. At its lows, it was down 11 or 12%. It hit a low at 25.90. The 52-week high is 54.72. But the problem that Lyft had was basically inflation. Lyft was saying that it needs to provide greater incentives to its drivers to get them to keep driving. Why? Well, because the drivers, their costs are running up. Their insurance costs, their gas costs, their maintenance costs. Plus, their cost of living is going up. The drivers need more money. So this is basically a wage problem. It's not wages because these drivers are not employees. They're independent contractors. But costs are going up for Lyft. Inflation is the reason that drivers need so much more money. It's the reason Lyft's earnings are collapsing. And this is problematic for a lot of companies, not just these rideshare companies. So this bad news is coming out on the very day that the Fed is proclaiming that the economy is great. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if you learned anything, is that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought there must be a catch. But after talking to them and learning about their service, it all made sense. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless services online only. They've cut out all the costs of operating retail stores and they've passed on all those savings to you. In fact, when it came time to get a cell phone for my young son Preston, Mint Mobile was hands down the best way to go. So for anyone who hates their phone bill, Mint Mobile now offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying just for yourself or your entire family. And at Mint Mobile, family packages start with two lines. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, shipped directly to your door for free, just go to mintmobile.com gold. That's mintmobile.com gold. Cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com gold. Now, probably the best question that was asked, and unfortunately, there wasn't any follow-up, and as usual, Powell sidestepped the question and didn't really answer it, although probably no one in the mainstream even bothered to pick up on the fact that this question was really dodged or what the answer really implies. That's why you listen to my podcast, because I am going to tell you the significance of Powell's non-answer. So the question was, Since we have high inflation or higher than we used to have, what would the Fed consider the neutral rate of interest to be given the fact that we are in an economy that has higher inflation? Which, of course, has been my point for a long time 
because the Fed and pretty much everybody else keeps talking about interest rates of two to three percent being neutral. And that's exactly what they claim neutral was when inflation was below 2%. And so it didn't make any sense to me that if now inflation is near 9%, that neutrality would be the same, that neutral would have to be higher because the way neutral is defined and Powell redefined it that way himself when he you know, didn't answer this question, but he said neutral is the rate where the Fed is neither stimulative nor contractionary, where the Fed is not trying to cool the economy off or heat the economy up, right? Where the Fed is completely neutral to the economy. Well, if inflation is 2% and the Fed's at 2%, that's a very different thing than if inflation is at 9% and the Fed's at 2%. Because if you have negative 7% real interest rates, you're not neutral. You are highly stimulative. You are stimulating borrowing when rates are so far below the rate of inflation. You are paying people to go into debt. Obviously, if you're paying people to borrow money, they're going to borrow more money. So the question is, okay, so 2% is neutral when we have no inflation. What's neutral now when we have high inflation? Now, instead of answering the question, Powell went into a definition of what neutral means, but then he clarified. He said, when we're talking about a neutral rate of 2 to 3%, we are talking about for an economy that has an inflation rate of 2% and that's also at full employment. Now, maybe as far as the Fed is concerned, we're at full employment right now, despite the low labor force participation rate, but clearly the Fed knows we're not at 2% inflation. So if 2 to 3% is neutral for an economy with 2% inflation, what's neutral for the economy we got now? Because what does 2% inflation have to do with today's economy when inflation is 8 or 9%? And at least that's the official rate. The real rate is much higher than that. But Powell didn't say. Powell just said what neutral would be in this fantasy economy that we don't have. Why doesn't he tell us what neutral would be in the economy that we actually have right now? He can't because that rate is so high, he would scare the hell out of the market. So he can't answer the question. Even though he was asked what the Fed believes neutral is, he couldn't say. All he could say is what neutral would be if inflation was only 2%. But it's not 2%, it's 9%. And he won't answer that question because he can't. Because in the words of Jack Nicholson, he can't tell those reporters the truth because the nation can't handle the truth. So he's going to spoon feed them another lie. But very few people probably even picked up on the fact that he didn't mention this. But I also think it's the first time that he officially acknowledged that when he's talking about a neutral rate of between 2 to 3%, he's not talking about a neutral rate for the economy we have now. He's talking about the neutral rate for some fantasy economy that may exist at some point in the future or the economy that we had in the past but it is completely irrelevant to the economy we have now. Powell will not acknowledge what the rate of neutral is for today's economy because he specifically said when he's talking about a neutral rate of 2 to 3%, he is referring to an economy that has inflation of 2%, not the economy we have today. So the Fed has never articulated what it defines neutral as for today's economy because it can't. But another reason why I found that comment to be dovish was because I know the reason the Fed won't say what neutral is, but it also means they have no intention of ever getting there. They know that if they get to 2 to 
and inflation is still at its current levels or even lower, but still materially above 2%, they're not going to get to neutral. There are a lot of people thinking the Fed may go above neutral. There's no chance that they're going to get above neutral. They're not even going to get to neutral because they won't even define what neutral is because they know they're never going to get there. So the most they might get to is 2 to 3%. That will still be stimulative, but they may not even be able to get there because even though that's still stimulative as far as inflation is concerned, it's not enough stimulus as far as the markets are concerned or an economy that is overly addicted to cheap money. And the problem for the economy is going to be inflation is what's going to cause the recession. So as inflation is getting worse, even though the Fed is still stimulating the economy with cheap money, that stimulus is being more than offset by rising prices. And in fact, you know, one of the other comments that Powell made going back to the opening statement was he talked about wage growth. And I think he talked about it again in a Q&A too. But one of the reasons that Powell is claiming we have such a strong economy is because wages are going up. Yes, wages are going up. But what Powell didn't acknowledge is that other prices are going up faster. Well, so what if your wages went up 5%? If your cost of living went up 8%, you lost 3% of your purchasing power. In fact, Powell talked several times about consumer spending. Hey, the economy is strong because consumers are spending. Well, they're spending more because everything costs more. And where are they getting the money? They're not earning it. They're borrowing it. They're depleting their savings. And what are they spending the money on? They're spending it on more expensive food, on more expensive gas, on more expensive rent. They're not buying more. They're just paying more. How is that a sign of a strong economy? It's not. All the signs that the Fed is oblivious to point to a weak economy. Now, getting back to high inflation, the point that Powell wanted to make is that he didn't want this high inflation to become entrenched. That's what he said. He didn't want households to think that prices are going to keep going up at this pace indefinitely. He wants households to know that we will return to price stability. He kept talking about price stability. But again, how does the Fed define price stability? It defines price stability as prices that go up 2% a year. That doesn't sound very stable to me. To me, stability means prices stay the same. They don't just go up every year. But again, if consumers are struggling with high prices, if they get even higher, that's just going to increase their struggle. Why can't the Fed talk about reducing the cost of living? Well, that's because they think deflation is always a problem, even after massive inflation. I mean, what if prices went up 50%? What if prices doubled? Would the Fed still not want prices to come down? Like all price increases are permanent. We can never give anything back. Like whatever price increases happen, we have to build on that. We can never try to reduce prices so the cost of living goes down. That shows you how ridiculous this is. But probably the single most important comment I think that Powell made. And nobody, nobody has picked up on this. I think I'm the only one that's talking about it. We'll see if other people talk about it in the future after they learn about it from me. But I don't think anybody else will make this observation. But I think it is a very important takeaway from this press conference. Powell was asked about Paul Volcker because he has said good things about Paul Volcker. And in fact, all Fed chairmen have to say good things about Paul Volcker because they have to pretend that when push comes to shove, they would do exactly what Paul Volcker did. But of course, they won't because they can't. But you have to pretend that you admire him, whether you admire him or not. And Powell reiterated 
the fact that, yes, he is a Paul Volcker fan. He admires Paul Volcker. But then he went out of his way to clarify why he admires him, right? He said he did not admire him because he raised interest rates so much. That's not what Powell admires about Paul Volcker. And so he's kind of sending a not-so-subtle message to the markets that, hey, I didn't admire him because he raised interest rates a lot. And so that doesn't mean that I'm going to emulate him by doing the same thing. He said the reason that he admired Paul Volcker was because he did what he believed was right. That's why Powell admired him. He did what he believed was right. Even if what he did was wrong, even if he did something that Powell himself would not have done in those circumstances or in these circumstances, he just admires the fact that he did what he believed in, which I think is an easy way to kind of claim that you admire him as a person, but not that you admired necessarily his policies, nor would you follow from that playbook, meaning that Paul Volcker was willing to push the economy into a recession to fight inflation. We don't know if Powell is willing to do the same thing because Powell may not think that's worth it. And in fact, I don't know that he thinks it's worth it because if he did, he would have already been more aggressive on his inflation fight. But he did not have to go out of his way to clarify why he admired Paul Volcker unless he was trying to draw a distinction between what Paul Volcker did and what he admired. He didn't admire the rate hikes. He admired the fact that Paul Volcker did what he thought was right. Now, the reason that you need to admire Paul Volcker is he did what he thought was right, even in the face of lots of criticism, even in the face of a lot of flack, even though doing what he thought was right resulted in a big recession. That's what you have to admire because he had the courage to stand up and do the right thing even though the short-term consequences of doing the right thing were painful. Powell did not mention any of that. He just said he did what he thought was right. And so what that is telling me is that Powell would not do that. If Powell were in Volcker's position back then, he might not have been so aggressive on fighting inflation because he may not have believed that that was the right thing to do. And I know he's not going to think it's the right thing to do now because doing it would be so much harder. That's why it's so ridiculous when you see all these people coming out on television talking about inflation that we have now. And they always want to compare it to the 70s so they can tell us it's not that bad in comparison because the numbers were much higher. But of course, what they don't tell you is that we have a different CPI now than we had then. And if we measured inflation today using the CPI of the 1970s, or if we measured inflation in the 1970s using the CPI of today, the inflation we have now is every bit as bad, if not worse, than anything we experienced during the 1970s. So to dismiss the inflation that we have now by claiming it's not as bad as what we had back then is wrong. It's as bad. In fact, it's probably worse. But what's even worse than the fact that inflation itself is worse is how much more damage would be done to the economy if we actually fought it. Because back in 1980, we didn't have all this debt. The national debt was under a trillion. Now it's over 30 trillion. Back then, the national debt was financed with 30-year treasury bonds. Now it's financed with 30-year T-bills. Back then, we had a trade surplus. 
Now we have record trade deficits. Back then we were the world's biggest creditor nation. Now we're the world's biggest debtor nation. We have a gigantic debt bubble that we didn't have back then. So in 1980, the economy could afford to fight inflation because we could afford to pay higher interest rates. Today, we can't afford to fight inflation because we're all levered up with debt. Even though we have a bigger inflation monster to fight, we are in a weaker position to actually fight it. So everything about today's inflation is so much worse than the 1970s, yet everybody keeps going around claiming that it was so much worse back then when it's actually worse now. But more important than the fact that inflation is worse is that it's so much harder to do something about it. And because it's so much harder to do something about it, we won't. And so the bad inflation we have now is just getting started. And even though it's already worse than anything we had in the 70s, it's about to get even worse than that. The numbers are just getting started. We're still near trough inflation rather than peak inflation. But when I heard Jerome Powell draw that distinction as to why he admired Paul Volcker, it immediately made me think of this New York Times editorial that I had just read at the end of last week. And I think maybe the New York Times is somehow working with Powell. Because to me, this seems like it's scripted because that New York Times article was specifically about Paul Volcker and the courage that he had in 1980 and why the circumstances today require a new kind of courage. And what is that new kind of courage? Well, it's actually cowardice. What the New York Times was saying is that Jerome Powell has to have the courage to be a coward. He can't act like Paul Volcker and just shock and awe and raise interest rates. He needs to have the courage to go slow. I'm not making this stuff up. You can go look online for this editorial. I'm going to read a little bit from the editorial just so you don't think I'm making it up. Quote, the present moment requires a different kind of courage. Instead of reprising Mr. Volcker's shock and awe tactics, the Fed needs to pursue a more measured approach, one that would bring inflation under control without sending the economy into a deep recession. See, that's impossible. You can't do that. In fact, to bring this inflation under control, given how leveraged the economy is, would actually send the economy into a deeper recession than the one it went through in early 1980. There is no way to fight inflation without causing recession. And what the New York Times is saying is that Powell should have the courage not to fight inflation. Because if he fights inflation, we're going to have a recession. But that's the exact courage that we needed. We needed a guy like Paul Volcker to be willing to put the economy into a recession to fight inflation. And here the New York Times says that Powell needs to have the courage not to do that. In other words, he has to have the courage to be a coward, to take the chicken's way out and not to do anything that might hurt the economy, even if it's necessary to control inflation. The fact of the matter is, it takes courage to do what's unpopular. Doing something that's popular, that takes no courage at all. But the article goes on to make another point. And it basically says that because Volcker was so courageous and he raised interest rates up so aggressively that Powell doesn't actually have to do it because the markets know that he could do it. The fact that Powell did it in the past, that kind of courage will just be attributed to Powell. And so if Powell can just kind of bluff and pretend that he would do what Volcker did, he won't have to because the markets will react to the threat of Powell jacking up rates. And so he won't actually have to do it. And we can thank Paul Volcker for creating this reputation of a Fed that's willing to make the hard choices, even though Powell basically just admitted that he's not going to do that. 
He only admires Volker because he did what he thought was right. Not because he did something unpopular, not because he jacked up interest rates and was willing to put the economy into a recession, only because he did what he thought was right. And what Powell thinks is right and what Volcker thinks is right could be two different things. But I don't think Volcker's credibility is going to extend to Powell. Just because Volcker did the right thing in 1980 doesn't mean Powell's going to do the right thing in 2022. In fact, as I pointed out, Volcker had the ability to do the right thing. Powell does not. As bad a recession as Volcker created by doing the right thing, Powell would create one that was far worse. He would create a depression. In fact, if Powell did the right thing, not only would we have a worse financial crisis than the one we had in 2008, but the U.S. government itself would have no choice but to default on the national debt. That's how high the stakes are. That's why Powell is never going to do the right thing. And it's only a question of time before the markets figure this out. I want to finish up this podcast, though, by talking about another press conference that happened earlier in the day. And this one was given by President Biden. And the most interesting part of this press conference is how Biden once again tried to frame himself as this big deficit cutter. Biden brought up the fact that he gets a lot of criticism from Republicans for big deficits. And he wanted to point out that he's the first president in a long time to cut the deficit. He mentioned correctly that the deficit went up every year of the Trump administration, which is true, which is one of the reasons I criticize Donald Trump every year he was president for doing just that. And part of my criticism was that it was going to make it harder for Republicans in the future to criticize the Democrats for deficit spending when they did the same thing when they were in charge. And Biden is doing exactly what I predicted a future Democrat would, comparing himself to Trump and pointing out the big increases in deficits under Trump and therefore the hypocrisy of Republicans who did not criticize Trump for running up the deficits, but who are criticizing Biden. But now Biden can actually say, I'm cutting the deficits. I'm actually doing the opposite. Trump made the deficits go up. I'm bringing them down. So what are you saying? You're worse than hypocrites. But the only reason that Biden is able to claim that he's bringing the deficits down is because he's comparing the current deficits to the deficits during the last year of the Trump administration, 2020. Well, that was when COVID broke out. That was when we had all the stimulus, all the emergency spending, the PPP, all the big bailout programs. We had a massive deficit. The official budget deficit in 2020 was 3132 trillion dollars. And so Biden is bragging about the fact that he shrunk that. Well, of course, you have to shrink that. That deficit was crazy. It was because of these one-time events that were associated with the pandemic. The 2021 deficit, right, which is mostly post-COVID, the deficit was 2.772 trillion. I mean, it was only like a 10% reduction over the prior year. And so Biden is taking credit for that 10% reduction. But if you go back to 2019, which was still a big year because Trump increased the deficit again every year, but the deficit in 2019 was under a trillion. It was 984 billion. So what Biden should be comparing is not his recent deficit to the 2020 COVID-related deficit, but you have to go back to the last year that was before COVID because now we're post-COVID and we want to 
compare the post-COVID deficit to the pre-COVID deficit. Well, the 2021 deficit, even though it was smaller than 2020, it was almost triple 2019. The problem is Biden is maintaining an extremely high level of government spending. Is it slightly less than the amount that was being spent in Trump's last year due to COVID? Yes, but it's way more than Trump was spending before COVID. So Biden is failing to reduce all that government spending. And that was one of the reasons I opposed it at the time. I mean, there were so many reasons, but I was saying on this podcast, it's going to be very difficult to significantly reduce this spending once the public is used to it, once the voters are used to it. It's like this was a temporary surge in government spending. But as Milton Friedman used to say, there's nothing as permanent as a temporary government program. And the same thing applies to spending. Once the government gives you something, they're very reluctant to take it away.